0: Quick Takes is a podcast from BCA Research, informing investors with straightforward, actionable analysis of macro and market events. Hi there, and welcome back to the Quick Takes podcast. I'm your host, Rakai Ibrahim, strategist at BCA Research. In last week's conversation with my colleague, Matt Gherkin, we had a short discussion about his forecast for the U.S. midterm election. Matt heads up BCA's geopolitical and U.S. political strategies. Matt is back again on the podcast this week to discuss his takeaways from the U.S. midterm election. At the time of our discussion, the results were pointing to a Republican victory in the House, but that the Senate was still too close to call. Either way, the implication is that the U.S. government is shifting from single-party rule to two-party rule. So stick around to hear what Matt has to say about the implications of gridlock on domestic and foreign policy and ultimately financial markets. Welcome back to the podcast, Matt. It's great to have you on for a second week in a row.
1: Well, thank you, Rukai. And of course, there's so much going on. I'm glad to be here.
0: There really is. Um, So it's Thursday morning Eastern time, less than 48 hours after the midterm election polls have closed, so the results are still tentative. But what they're showing is that the Senate is still too close to call. The results essentially hinge on the outcome of three contests, specifically in Arizona, the Democrat is in the lead. In Nevada, the Republican is in the lead. And in Georgia, it's heading to a runoff election. Now, in the House, Republicans are slated to win, but it's a much narrower majority than they had hoped for. So the red wave scenario that some were anticipating did not materialize. What are some of the highlights from the election that you think are worth emphasizing?
1: We expected the Republicans to have a 15-seat majority. It looks like they may only have a two- or three-seat majority, so that is clearly a disappointment for the Republicans. But remember, it will still change control. The Republicans will gain the House, and that was one reason why we had very high conviction behind that view that there's a midterm election curse, and there were factors, you know, serious macroeconomic headwinds for the ruling party. So even though we knew that, for example, social issues like abortion would motivate Democrats to turn out and vote, Uh, we did not think it would change the outcome in the house in the end and and it hasn't so i think that's important to say right off the bat that the midterm curse is still in effect and the president did still lose control of the house of representatives Uh, but republicans won't be able to do much because they'll only have that thin margin in the senate we did not make a call we said it was 50 50. we did not believe the opinion polling was decisive at all and we saw that there were countervailing uh, trends, including that abortion issue, which, which again, had kept Democratic enthusiasm very high. So I think in retrospect, that looks like the right call. And of course, we don't know the answer now, but that reinforces the fact that it was basically a 50-50 election in the Senate. So we'll see what happens in the Georgia runoff and, and, and in Nevada. So it's still, you know, possible for Republicans to gain the Senate, but it's not clear that they will. And, and I suppose, you know, it's it's hard to say, because if you look at Georgia, for example, In 2020, in November, the Republican won, and then when it went to the runoff in January of 2021, the Democrat won. Mm -hmm. And so this time around, while the Democrat is in the lead in Georgia, now that they're going to a runoff on December 6th, we have to conduct an independent assessment of how that's going to end. So that means the Senate is up in the air. And, And I think then from a big picture, what we can say is very obvious. The two major parties of the United States are dead even. I mean, we're talking about one or two seat margins in both houses, and we're talking about repeated elections in which neither side gains a decisive advantage. And in the cases where they do gain a decisive advantage, like in 2016 and 2020, what happens is the party splurges on major legislation and then loses control.
0: Right, and before we talk about the implications of this gridlock, I do want to get to, I mean, you mentioned the abortion issue, so I want to get to your read on what the exit polls Um, Tell us about why the Republicans didn't perform as well as many had anticipated. What did it tell you about what the issues are that are dominating uh, the voters' decisions?
1: So one big thing is that unemployment rate is still very low. Household wealth has been bulked up by the stimulus, and it's not all gone yet. And then, of course, you had these social issues fueling investment. So those are macro issues, and they really did support Democrats. Now, at the same time, consumer confidence was down, real wage growth was down, real income growth was down, gasoline prices and headline inflation were high, right? So those were also macro factors. And I think what we did is we said, look, inflation is gonna be the number one issue. Inflation is a 40 year high. Uh, The Democrats cannot overcome that headwind. And I think ultimately that has proven to be correct. Uh, But it also shows it wasn't an outcome where you can simply ignore or disregard social factors and and that's important to think of for 2024 as well and it may not be abortion you know but it always matters what the most relevant issue is for voters but if we look at the polls any state that had an abortion referendum the public voted in favor of a pro-choice outcomes and that's true even in conservative states like kansas or kentucky meanwhile when we look at the exit polls 31% said that inflation was the biggest issue. 27% said abortion was the biggest issue. So they were almost even. And so I think this just does clearly say that if you take rights or privileges away from voters, there will be a backlash. And that's what happened. Voters lost the nationwide access to abortion. They rejected that. uh, And then they turned out to vote. And that was a huge tailwind for Democrats, even though the cycle itself went against it.
0: So the U.S. government is clearly shifting from single-party control to two-party control. So what are the implications of gridlock for economic policy over the coming two years, as well as what are the implications for U.S. foreign policy? So do you think, for example, gridlock to lead to a change in the geopolitical environment over the coming two years?
1: Yeah, and look, this is a great question. And it, we're going to get into the weeds a little bit, but let me just say outright, the, the key takeaway is that domestic policy will be paralyzed. It will be hard for the Republicans to do anything even within their own house. It will be hard for the Democrats to do anything even within the Senate, uh, not to mention that they disagree. So U.S. domestic policy is evenly split between two parties. It will be paralyzed and there won't really be major domestic policy changes unless there's some massive crisis that forces the two parties to get along. And meanwhile, foreign policy, we have a triple crisis. We have the Russia-Ukraine war and Russia-Europe energy cutoff. We have the U.S.-Iran breakdown. There was no strategic deal, no nuclear program freeze, and that's leading to instability in the Middle East. And then we have the U.S. Showdown with China, which is intensifying. President Biden has adopted President Trump's policy and even gone further with the export controls. And he's going to continue to reach out to Taiwan and strengthen relations with Taiwan, which will provoke China. So we have multiple foreign policy crises taking place. We have a domestic gridlock. Biden will clearly shift and focus more on the foreign policy front because that's where he will still retain agency. And that means that going forward, the world will be still facing this high level of policy uncertainty and geopolitical risk. And it also means that we won't really be able to predict what's going to happen in U.S. politics just looking at U.S. politics because the two parties are basically fighting a war of attrition. It's much more likely that exogenous factors will determine the outcome among the parties. And those exogenous factors are geopolitics uh, or external risks, or you could have a recession that's still very possible. And that, of course, would tip the scales against the Democrats in 2024.
0: So what does that mean then for financial markets? First of all, is gridlock positive for stocks? And second of all, one of the charts that you've shown in the past is that U.S. equities typically outperform in the third year of a first term president. So do you think that the stock market will get a similar boost this time around, given uh, the outcome of the election?
1: Well, it's interesting. I think there can be a relief rally, and we're already seeing that today. Inflation's rolling over, and the election is over, the, and then other things like the Chinese Party Congress is over. So there are reasons for relief here at the end of a bad year, but I don't think they are reliable because, of course, the Fed is still hiking and, and is going to have to keep hiking. And then you have some elements of inflation that are sticky, and you have the fact that those three foreign policy crises I mentioned can derail the global economy, specifically through Russian or Iranian induced oil disruptions. So I won't likely be participating wholeheartedly in this, uh, what I think is a bear market rally. But I would say in terms of policy, the clear outcome is that US taxes won't be able to go up. The only thing we can say for certain is that when Republicans control the House, they won't let taxes rise. And that's marginally beneficial for you know corporate earnings, and the other thing is that when you look at midterm elections, there usually is a, a a relief that the market experiences in the subsequent year just from knowing, you know, just from reducing the uncertainty. But the problem is that the gridlock is good. You know that narrative: gridlock is good. If you look at the details, it's not quite so clear. Gridlock has been very good in the post-Reagan era, and that was an era of lower taxes and you know free markets around the world, globalization, peace dividend. We're really not in that kind of an era and if you look at gridlock versus single-party government in other periods it's not so clear so for example gridlock performed worse in the early 1900s in the inflationary period like 1966 to 1982 in that period gridlock performed worse than single-party rule so we don't really know for sure and in fact the basic outline i would say is that look gridlock is marginally disinflationary you had a spending spree going on among the democrats That's now gonna be taken away and the market will kind of like that. But going into like the second half of next year, we'll see a huge increase in policy uncertainty because the Republicans will be obstructionist in the House. And that means that fiscal policy will not be nimble. It will not be responsive to this macroeconomic volatility that the world is facing. And that can lead to accidents, brinksmanship, all kinds of risks, whether it be around the debt ceiling in the third quarter next year Or responses, again, to foreign events. So I think basically it's a highly uncertain environment, and that leads up to the uncertainty of 2024, which is basically a a neck-and-neck competition as things stand. And that's going to make it hard for investors to be really confident about about the long-run outlook.
0: Right. And on the 2024 election, what are the implications that came out of the midterms? Do you think, for example, uh, given DeSantis' landslide victory in the midterms, would you now bet on him over Trump as the Republican nominee for 2024? Uh, And if DeSantis is, in fact, the nominee, do you think that that would improve the odds of a Republican victory? Or does the underperformance of the Republican Party in the midterm elections imply that Biden has a good chance of being reelected for a second term?
1: First of all, Biden has been underrated, and, and I've argued that all year, uh, in the sense that the sitting president is always the most likely person to be elected president, if they're eligible. And that is, that is clearly reinforced by this outcome, because even though it does weigh on the Democrats' odds that they lost the House, they barely lost the House. And so you know, you see that the coalition that Biden put together of young people, women, minority voters, uh, educated people, you know that, that coalition is still intact. And if there's no recession in particular, then he's definitely favored simply on the incumbent advantage. But his odds, like I say, they do go down a bit because he lost the house. And of course, he isn't a charismatic president. He has a low approval rating, and it will stay low. You know, he it won't it might rise to the mid forty percent range or something, but it's not going to be bursting above fifty percent approval for him. So he will suffer in that way. Also, inflation, like I say, is going to be sticky. You know, it'll come down. To some extent but then when it gets down to around four percent it's going to persist and it'll still be a problem for for voters and that means i would put biden in a camp alongside with like presidents johnson and carter rather than presidents clinton and obama because he's not personally charismatic or, or widely liked uh, and and he's not facing this kind of disinflationary backdrop he's in fact facing an inflationary backdrop And that would then make analogies with Johnson and Carter, I think, uh, pretty pertinent because they lost their approval rating over the period after the midterm elections, or or at least it stayed low. Uh, Now, of course, Obama did face economic troubles during his term, and that's very important. But on the other hand, what he also faced was an obstructionist house. And so we're gonna see Biden running against the obstructionist house, much like Obama did. And then it's a question of whether that works, given that he's not charismatic. Now, for Republicans quickly, Definitely, it was a huge boost to Florida Governor Ron DeSantis uh, relative to Trump, because not only did DeSantis do very well, but the Trump kind of loyalists did not perform well. And in fact, they got close enough to winning, but yet not winning in a cycle that should have favored them that it is a fairly clear implication that there was a defect in their qualifications or their personality, their you know their approach. That's going to be something that within the Republican Party will start to reverberate, that we need more candidates like Ron DeSantis who can pull it off. Uh, or like the other conventional Republicans who've all pulled off their their Senate uh, runs. I also think though that it's we can't count Trump out because he has a large personal following within the party and the Republican nomination process is a winner-takes-all process. So Trump, if he has the, the most votes in any state, he'll get all of the delegates for that state, which will favor the top dog in the Republican nomination. So basically the onus is on DeSantis to execute, to actually deliver what is the potential uh, for him to win the nomination and I think he can because I think overall Trump will be seen as damaged goods and I think that DeSantis will be seen as a fresh face and someone who can appeal to independence in the general election but it's very close very tight between those two and it's going to be a real rumble in the jungle when we get to 2024.
0: Well something to look forward to then thanks a lot for chatting with me Matt.
1: Thank you Rukaya.
0: Thanks for listening to this episode of the Quick Takes Podcast. We'll be bringing you weekly quick takes with BCA strategists on a range of macro and market topics. Next week, I plan to catch up with my colleague, Doug Pita, about his outlook for the US economy and financial markets. Doug heads BCA's US investment strategy service and is bullish on US equities over the near term. So stay tuned for an interesting conversation.